Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our class on Proverbs. We're in chapter 19. We'll pick up at verse 4. Maybe we'll get a little bit of a running start here. We're on this section in Proverbs 19. It's where it concludes. We've been in it since Proverbs 17, 25. A foolish son avoiding fools and foolishness. And so we'll pick up there uh, right after our invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so just to get a little running start at 19.1, better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. So again, we talked about the great treasure of integrity, and that contrasts with one who has no integrity, who is crooked in his speech, and is thus a fool. And one who is crooked in their speech, of course, makes every, gives every appearance as being wise. Because they're subtle, they're crafty, they're conniving, they get what they want with their words, and people go, ooh. I mean, even when it's really wicked, you still kind of go, wow, that was well done. That <laughs> took a lot of skill. But of course, they, despite this facade, it's really objectively foolishness. Why? Well, a theme we're going to see recur once more in this context is simply this. God's watching. God's not tricked. God's not deceived by the equivocation and the sophisticated deceit from the lips, the crookedness of speech. So, uh, despite appearances that one might give of being crooked in speech, uh, they're a fool. I think, unfortunately, as we all know all too well, our Leaders in this country, by and large, our media by, in this country, by and large, um, are all ones with crooked speech. And just, like, can, can anyone even tell the truth anymore? This is an astonishing reality. Of course, we have that admonition to live not by lies. That's our duty in a world that does nothing but lie. And here we can be assured that the crooked in speech are foolish. They won't prevail. They won't get their way. In the end, they lose. And, of course, they lose plenty down here as well as, as it is. So to, even if it means being poor, who cares? Walk in your integrity. Walk in the integrity of the Lord. So walking in your integrity here is obviously Christian in its sense. To be guided by the light of Christ's word, to live by the light of that word, is then um, going to be to have the greatest treasure and to cease from being a fool. All right, two. We talked about this desire or a soul probably is better. A soul without knowledge is not good. And whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. So again, highlighting, and we spent more time on this last week, but highlighting uh, the importance of knowledge for the sake of a soul. It's good for your soul. It's necessary for your soul. And then part of knowledge is not making haste. So another slow down proverb uh, that we're going to see more of as well even today. Okay, verse 3, when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. 
Yeah, this great irony. Did I consult God's word? No. Did I consult wise Christians? No. Did I act foolishly? Well, in hindsight, absolutely. Whose fault is it? God's. <laughs> you know, and even we as Christians could fall into this, of course. If we, if we, uh, our sinful nature leads us astray down a wrong path, we never stop to seek his word. We never stop to seek Christian wisdom. And we go down a fool's path, even maybe unwittingly, but we go down a fool's path and we end up in a fool's destination how foolish it would be to crown all that previous foolishness by shaking our fist at God. You did this. So, a proverb highlighting that reality. Um, when we find ourselves in ruin, we should confess the sins that led us there. And rather than rage against the Lord, we should see it as his good and fatherly discipline, as his correction or chastisement, and see what we might learn from that see what we might deeply repent of and mourn for within ourselves, but then also see like what, what are the impulses, what were the thoughts that led me down that path that turned out so poorly. So it's an opportunity to reflect and an opportunity even in the midst of uh, ruin to the Lord. So I'm kind of thinking even tangentially here in the background of the son who leaves the father's house takes his inheritance and goes and squanders it all. It's a man's folly that ultimately brings his way to ruin. And rather than, I mean, if his heart continued to rage against the Lord or rage against his father, he would have sat there in the pig muck until he starved to death or died of some disease or something. So to use that as an opportunity to return to the Lord um, is is the, the way of turning foolishness into wisdom. All right, four then, where we left off. Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. Singular. We talked about the importance of friendship, and it was highlighted for us in the previous proverb in this section. A friend is closer than a brother. Here I think we have an enigmatic proverb that invites all kinds of reflection, positive and negative. I mean, negative, you go, yeah, this is the fickleness of fallen humanity that they won't be friends unless there's benefit in it for them. So wealth brings many new friends. Of course, are they true friends? No, they're friends of the wealth. Again, think of the son who leaves his father's house and in the parable of the prodigal son, he's got tons of friends around him as long as dad's money is still flowing and as long as he's still buying rounds and uh, inviting everyone out on vacation with him. Everything's good and he's got friends. As soon as he spends all his money and becomes a poor man, he's deserted by all. So I think there's, there's kinds of uh, negative reflections we can have. What, what would be some positive reflections that, you know, again, maybe via the parable of the unrighteous steward, he uses money as a means to an end of making friendships. And so we can recognize that as Christians, we can be generous in service of God's kingdom, be merciful and helpful to others in service of God's kingdom. We can reflect on that, even if that's not maybe narrowly the sense of this proverb. 
kind of the wickedness of mammon. I just can't get away from the negative read, especially on account of that last line, a poor man is deserted by his friend. How does the study note take it? Wealth has its earthly advantages. Does it, though? And the money of the rich often gains them many associates. However, since the poor are abandoned by fair-weather friends, this proverb warns against relying too heavily on friendships gained by wealth. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. Okay, then on into five. A false witness will not go unpunished. And he who breathes out lies will not escape. As we said moments earlier, that's because God's watching and God cares and God will judge. And he does so temporally and eternally. And it's almost better if you have to face the consequences temporally. Because then you might actually hear that clarion call to wake up, to repent, and to be forgiven by the atoning death of Christ. Be reconciled to God through his great grace and mercy in Jesus. But again, for us as Christians, this kind of proverb steers us away from this. And is a warning against this kind of thing, false witness, breathing out lies. It brings to our mind the remembrance of God. We want to eschew these things. And where others seem to be getting away with them, as we reflected on in the world, you know, America, especially the the greatest and most public of the liars in our midst, just seem to be getting richer and richer and doing better and better to the expense of everyone else in the nation. One might think, hmm, the way of lying is the way of prosperity. But this proverb brings us back to our senses. It absolutely isn't. God's paying attention, and the scales will be balanced. Okay, six. Many seek the favor of a generous man, um, more literally a prince or a noble. And everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. I mean, I look at the meditation on this one very similar to the meditation on verse 4, that proverb there, because there's positive and negative aspect to this. Let me just draw out a tangential aspect of this, and that is that we look to do good, and as we're going to see, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, that when we reflect on our lives, whatever you have done to the least of these, my brothers, my, my Christians, okay, my fellow Christians, that we want to do good to the household of the faith. Good to, to all people insofar as we're able, but especially to those of the household of faith. That's what the scriptures teach. And so here, again, I think is a tragedy of our age where people are maybe late in life and they go, I don't know what to do with all my money. You should consider that God has blessed you to be a kind of prince or noble or as the ESV puts it, a generous man. And you can bless people with your access funds that God has given you a stewardship over. You can bless them so that they can follow more closely in the ways of the Lord. That's, uh, and that, that is just something, I know it may be rare, and, um, but it's still worth saying that this is a thing and a theme in the scriptures and an an office in the informal sense of the word, that if God has blessed you with superabundance, look to use that superabundance to nurture his kingdom and especially to nurture people within that kingdom. Don't be, don't be a prince or a noble who just erects a kind of idol to himself. 
All right. Maybe that's enough there. Seven, all a poor man's brothers hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? So you can reflect, I mean, superficially, at least relatively superficially, on the idea here that um, if you don't have anything to give others, then there's not going to be any, anyone around you. I think the, yeah, what's the study notes say? People who constantly implore for help are not tolerated long. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a, that's a fine reflection, a fair reflection. I'm not sure that's encompassing of the sense of this, but it's a, it's a worthwhile take. And then ultimately, my mind just goes to this, that Christ is he who became, he who was rich became poor for our sakes, that we might become rich in him. When he impoverishes himself, uh, Christ emptying himself, taking on the form of a servant, impoverishing himself unto the uttermost on the cross, he becomes the poor man. And it is certainly also true that his brothers hate him and his friends go far from him. He's being crucified by his brothers, his friends, the disciples, save for one who's under protection, have all departed from him. So I think there's a sort of Christology hidden in here. And as we reflected on last week, a kind of Christology connected with poverty, emptying yourself out for the sake of the Lord. You know, it's, it's kind of this, to look at it sideways, if there's someone who the devil has allowed to be on social media or TV with a great following of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, you can just about be guaranteed that what's going to come out of their mouths is worthless. God works through the poor and through the small and through that which the world will not pay attention to. And that has always been his MO. And only in certain select circumstances or, of course, um, different eras. In different, I'm thinking of like, you know, where you've got King David over Israel, over that region or something like this. But that's a, that's a rarity relative to the rest of the world, relative to the rest of history, relative to the rest of how God works in the scriptures. So it's worthwhile to meditate on the sort of poverty that very frequently accompanies speaking the truth and not giving oneself over to mammon, not selling out, but holding firm to the truth, even if there are monetary consequences of that. And if you are hated for that, if you um, are you know, abandoned by your friends for that, well, so was Christ. And so do not let that bring you into despair. Okay, well, that, I think, is a a reflection on this proverb, too, that's worth having. It's a bit of a nebulous proverb and invites reflections from all these different angles. So, uh, just the final, the final one, I think, kind of takes our meditate, the final, sorry, like, statement, sentence of this proverb kind of takes our minds back down to earth as it were so you have all a poor man's brothers hate him how much more do his friends go far from him he pursues them with words but does not have them so sort of flipped on its head like what's the reversal of this it might be being industrious enough that you have something to give to others as opposed to being lazy and poor and then a burden so much to others that they flee from you 
And I think that's the way the second part of the study note goes. Yeah, maybe people flee to escape a person's persistent begging. So he pursues them with words, a way of saying he persistently begs. And so they're constantly fleeing away. He does not have them. All right, let me pause there. Let me see if you have any reflections on these. It's kind of a, I mean, there's some overlapping kinds of themes in here, but it's pretty scattershot, isn't it? We're here, and then we're here, and then we're on another topic. Any thoughts? There's one. Pastor, could you connect or give your thoughts on uh, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven with respect to this passage? Do you think there's a, a linkage or some insight we could get from that? Yeah, definitely. I, and I may have done a more thorough job last week. I can't remember if it was this class or some other class, but... Um, the the Bible maybe it was in my sermon I, I don't know <laughs> so in Matthew's gospel Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount blessed are the poor in spirit Jesus has a different version I mean slightly different version of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Plain recorded in Luke's gospel in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew's Gospel, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. In the Sermon on the Plain, in Luke's Gospel, he says, blessed are the poor. It's full stop. I actually think blessed are the poor in spirit is a little easier to understand theologically than blessed are the poor. I actually think that's kind of more the 200 proof, non-diluted. Blessed are the poor in spirit gives you a little bit more what he means when he says that. So let me just align this with something you'll notice in the scriptures as you go through them, is you'll notice this motif where the poor are good and the evil are bad. Or the evil are bad. My goodness, can I please have some more coffee? The rich are bad. Yeah. The poor are good. The rich are bad. Did I say it right? I hope so. I'm going to be second-guessing myself. And this just becomes a motif throughout the scriptures. And you'll run into it all over. Are, are there exceptions? Of course there are exceptions. The Bible spells those exceptions out. But it doesn't, the exceptions only prove the rule. Generally speaking, the rich are wicked and the poor are good. Or the rich are hardened against God and the poor are opened to God. So we can certainly reflect on that and we can reflect on like what Paul says about the specific congregation in Corinth the men have been studying that how it's generally true for all of the church of all the of all times and places not many of you are rich not many of you are, are powerful not many of you are noble birth of our are of noble birth so god chooses the lowly and it's actually the lowliness of life that is helpful and, and sort of more cultivated, fertile soil when Christ comes and has mercy on you. The rest of the world just looks down its nose at you for being poor. Whereas the rich are full and puffed up and bloated and don't want anything from the Lord because they have everything they need for mammon. So what I'm here doing is just trying to paint a general picture of how the Bible speaks of poverty and wealth wealth is sometimes even viewed as a burden because it's a responsibility if God it, it, like 
everything that God has given you more than your basic needs becomes a stewardship and a responsibility and something you're answerable for. When when Jesus is dealing with that poor man next to the pool of Siloam, he's just he's laying there. He's he can't get up and work. Okay, so it's not like he's intentionally lazy or something. He can't get up and work by his situation in life. Um, he's destitute. He's a beggar. He's poor. He lives off of the mercy of the Lord as that mercy takes form in the mercy of people. Jesus asks him. Do you want to be made well? Are you sure? Are you ready to get up and make your own living? Because <laughs> that's what's going to happen. There, there are many, many deep things to reflect on here. As well as the kind of poverty in, in, in which we're born. A kind of poverty that even if you're born to the wealthiest of all families on earth... Everything that you have is given to you. And that even comes down to your own like care. People have to feed you and clothe you and shelter you and love you and all of that. And you've got this whole arc of life, too, where you know the front half of God, more or less, God is giving. And we're all saying, hopefully, blessed is the name of the Lord. Then the second half of life, that arc, is the Lord's taking away. And the question is, can we also say, Blessed is the name of the Lord. That becomes the question of the latter half of life. So from a kind of poverty to whatever wealth he gives, and I'm speaking very broadly here. I'm not speaking about what's in your bank account, necessarily. Um, To a kind of poverty that returns. Kind of emptiness. So there's this, what I'm trying to say here is it's really baked into creation. And it's worth contemplating. And part of, I mean, of course, like, just to get to the point, Rhodey, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor, period, or blessed are the poor in spirit, period, he's referring to those who realize that apart from God, they are nothing and have nothing. Why? Or or even, even maybe more poignantly, what do I bring to God? Basically a debt of sin. And Christ is so gracious as to take that debt upon himself and have it nailed to the cross in his flesh in order to pay it and put it away forever, in order to take away my debt and reconcile me to the Father. But I realize that not only am I impoverished, I'm in debt. He removes my debt and he fills me with his riches. So to return to that, the prodigal son, when he comes back, the father doesn't say, okay, well, you've burned through your inheritance, So, out out of pity, I've given you a tent outside of the wall. You can go sleep out there. What you're going to eat, I don't know. What you're going to drink, you're welcome to the family well. But when he comes back, even though he's poor, he probably reeks of the pig stuff he was walking around in. Whatever clothing he has that he couldn't sell is uh, probably in bad condition and dirty and smells horribly. And the father comes and sees this poor man, his son, and wraps around him a robe, a glorious robe, a robe of righteousness, and prepares the calf that uh, there might be a great feast of reconciliation. 
and puts the ring on his finger, which is basically like the family credit card. <laughs> you can buy and sell with that ring just by stamping it into the wax seal. Puts sandals on his feet, which shows that he's not a slave, but a free man. He's not come back and bound to servitude. He's not a slave in the father's house, but he's a free man and a son once more. So he takes this, this man who was poor and makes him rich. And that's a beautiful, beautiful picture of the kind of evangelical poverty that has nothing to do with what's in your bank account per se. It's an evangelical poverty encompassed in those words, blessed are the poor, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who realize that they have nothing except that which Christ gives. And there's complete freedom and complete rejoicing in that because you let go of everything. You let go of all your debts. You let, I mean, real debts or, <laughs> you know, real sins. Real, and I'm not saying you don't repay them, okay? But I am saying you let go of it in the sense that Christ has forgiven you your wrongdoings and he's filled you with the true and lasting treasures, which are not monetary in nature. They're the treasures of heaven already bestowed upon us here on earth. So if you consider yourself rich, how much can Christ give you? Not much. I've already got it all. That's why in Mary's song in Luke's gospel, the rich he sends empty away. The poor he lifts up and exalts. So to have that self-identity that Luther had, we are all beggars. I've got nothing. I may, I may have enough in my 401k to live on for the rest of my life and have my children live. What's, I'm still going to say, I'm, I'm a beggar. That has been, I myself am destitute. That has been given to me by God. And it is now a responsibility to distribute in a godly way. To be, going back to our proverb here, a generous man, a prince or a noble for the sake of building the kingdom of God in the, in the present and in the generations to come. But I myself have nothing. And naked I came into the earth and naked I'll return. And when I'm standing before the Lord, there's not going to be any bank account there. There's not going to be anything else, right? There's going to be the riches of Christ or the poverty of sin. So I, does that kind of, I've probably talked too much about it. but Yeah, please do. So that explains a lot about blessed are the poor in spirit. But I was wondering also, though, about this whole business of the brothers and friends of the poor man forsaking him, mm-hmm. as you have in, in Proverbs. Mm-hmm. And that if I could connect it to one more thing, and that is you brought up the prodigal son, uh, right, that he was a poor man. Uh, and it seemed that his brother forsook him in the end of the the. the parable. Can you, can you expand on that a little bit? Or, or maybe you've expanded enough. I don't know. It's, yeah, well, I mean, I'll, I'll leave it to you. Yeah, I just say it's the Christological motif. It's the crucifixion motif. As these things happen to Christ, those who follow in his path, uh, the same things will happen to us. That, that's what I would say there. And now maybe, maybe more fruitful, if because I know there's, there's some people going, well, that doesn't seem to be the sense of the proverb. That might be a fine reflection, but that's not the sense of the proverb, to which I would agree. 
I would say narrowly the sense of the proverb is something more like, all a poor man's brothers hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursues them with words but does not have them. I mean, in the one sense, it's the tragedy that the only reason people love you is because of what you can give them. I think that's probably the primary sense. Maybe, maybe arguably the primary sense instead, like just an A-B kind of thing, like I don't care which is A or which is B, but you could gain the sense of like, you want to be industrious so that you have something to provide for others. It's not good to be a leech. Probably one of those two reflections is the, prime, is the intended primary reflection on this proverb. But to go more deeply into these themes is what the proverbs are ultimately written for. Otherwise, they wouldn't be proverbs. They wouldn't, and they wouldn't be put in a poetic and reflective pattern. Um, they wouldn't be put in the genre of wisdom literature. It'd just be some sort of straightforward statement like, you know, be industrious so that you're not a leech. <laughs> Which I think there are probably scriptures that say exactly that, I mean, in so many words. Uh, the proverbs in, invite a, a, a broader reflection. We, what are ways in which this proverb is true? What are ways in which it appears to be false? What are, what are the exceptions? What, what is the deeper wisdom? How does this reveal the wisdom of Christ unto us? Those are fit questions for reading the Proverbs. So that's kind of what I've done, and hopefully I haven't lost the forest for the trees and riffing on Christ and this kind of uh, more existential or essential poverty with which we have, that we have to recognize in ourselves in order to see the world more clearly and to receive the fullness of the blessings of Christ. That's the, the blessed. I mean, Jesus could just as easily say, blessed are the sinners, because he came not for the righteous, but for sinners. He could say, blessed are the sick, because he came not for the well, but for those who are sick. So he says, blessed are the poor, because he came not for the rich, to send the rich empty away came only for the poor. So that's really the genre in which, the genre of Christ's preaching in which that those phrases, blessed are the poor and blessed are the poor in spirit, fall. Okay, very good. So let's jump back in then. At eight, I'm yeah, continuing the reflection here on money, although it's not so obvious in the English text. Whoever gets sense, so whoever gains wisdom, understanding, judgment, loves his own soul, and that's fine, buys or seeks heart is the kind of more wooden or literal translation. So, you know, what do you invest in? What do you buy? What do you seek? Whoever gains sense, gains wisdom from God, is buying or seeking heart. That is, he's showing love for his own soul, his own being. I touched on this last week, just touch on it again briefly here. That is that receiving sense, knowledge, wisdom, etc., and all that flows from it, from the Lord, is a gift that we're intended to have throughout all our lives. And again, I brought out the point that in our context of utilitarianism, where the only things that have value are the things that have use, we want to get rid of that idea because the wisdom that comes from the Lord, its use 
is that the Lord has given it to you that you may delight in it, that you may praise his name, that you may marvel at it, that you may rejoice in it. How many people are required for that? No others. There's no utility. There's no pragmatism. There's just the rejoicing of a father who gives a gift to his son, and his son is filled with joy and explores and plays with it. And that you can have whether you're five years old and you're hearing this stuff in Sunday school or whether you're 95 years old and laying half conscious in a a hospital bed. The word of the Lord, the knowledge of the Lord is to be received as a gift and its value is simply in its giving and in its receiving. So this idea then that whoever gets sense, whoever receives the word of the Lord, just to put it bluntly, loves his own soul. That's what we were made for. Buys and seeks heart, like the treasure that's going to be in heaven when the Lord takes us heart and soul into heaven. He who keeps understanding. So I like this because, at least in English, it's got this idea of retention, retaining. He who keeps understanding will discover good. So you're going to, if you have God's word and you have this sense, this understanding given to you, you're going to find good and more and more good through what he gives. It just never ends. It's, it's truly, I mean, as infinite as God is beyond us, small little, cre- you know, finite creatures, so also the wealth of his wisdom. You're never going to get like, okay, well, I'm probably 95% of what God knows. Okay, I'm probably at like, you know, I'm going to be modest. 70% of what the scripture says I know. Not even close. Not even close. So it's just, I mean, a great analogy for it is just, it's as boundless as the ocean. You can go out and start swimming with your little scuba diving tank and explore for the rest of your life, and you're going to know a tiny little fragment of it. Theologians are like marine biologists. We can go into the water and say, hey, look at this neat thing, or look at that neat thing, or I can show you things that you never even dreamed of before. And, but at the end of the day, a marine biologist doesn't know the whole ocean, and neither does any particular theologian. And so, too, then, you can get rid of the kind of snobbery that's baked into American culture, because you can realize that the ocean's the ocean, and it's yours whether you're a marine biologist or not. And you can enjoy it, and it's for you whether you stay in the shallows or whether you go out to the surf whether you go beyond the surf and into some of the depths, it, you know, like, it scales to you. And there's never getting any bigger than the ocean. There's never encompassing the ocean. And so also it's true with God's word. So just to realize that there's joy upon joy and to cling to things. And that's what I like about the English rendition here. He who keeps understanding. Because, of course, the fallen nature is always wanting to get rid of it, replace it, forget it. The world's wanting to jam all of its catechization in your ears of what it thinks is wise. And, yeah, it's got all kinds of sophistication there because the world's... The world's all like just puppet stringed by the devil and these super intelligences. So the world presents itself like, here's a stupid worldly view. You're so much more enlightened. Here's an enlightened, intelligent worldview. And you go, oh, yeah, well, I'm not like those people. I'm like, and you're still so far from the wisdom and kingdom of God, right? 
So this is seeking godly wisdom, godly understanding, and to keep it because the devil, the world, and your sinful nature, these are all going to work against you and try to strip you of it. And as you have it, you will discover good. So beautiful gift, uh, a gift in and of itself. Doesn't matter if you can't express it. Doesn't matter if you can't explain it. Doesn't matter if you never write it into a hymn. Doesn't matter if you never preach it in a sermon. Doesn't matter if you ever communicate it to your children. It's a gift, and it's wonderful and worthy in and of itself. Please. Mm-hmm. And I think we can distill it down to when you're really poor in spirit, you're seeking. You have that nature to seek mm-hmm. and look for answers. When you're rich, the hugest trap fall that you could fall into is you stop seeking. Mm-hmm. You're, you're tied to finite things of this world, and it's a burden. And it's dangerous because somehow we need to protect that, too. And the world keeps telling us that. Very finite. Whereas you just so perfectly illustrated, which is, I came to this before, that the difference is seeking versus not seeking. Mm -hmm. You perfectly illustrated that, you know, the Proverbs, and, you know, we can just keep seeking and seeking, and it's limitless. Mm -hmm. And it feeds that seeking nature. So if we can nurture that seeking nature and we can keep going back to God and praising him for what he shows us, mm-hmm. we've got the right perspective to combat the world that would insist, no, this is the better deal. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it is, it's worthwhile. I probably plug this every week. Sorry, not sorry, I guess. Uh, but it is why our day should end and begin with prayer and be punctuated with mealtime prayers, and especially the Lord's Prayer, because that's already the Word of God. So in our poverty, you might go on any given day, well, I've got nothing to think about or nothing to meditate on or no word of the Lord. I can't remember what the sermon was about, let alone the text on Sunday. Okay, but do you have the Lord's Prayer? Do you have the invocation at the beginning of your day? At the end, Then you have a wealth of God's wisdom at your fingertips. Just take any single petition and meditate on it. The very first ones, I mean, just the introduction, I mean, our Father who art in heaven, what does it mean to have God as your Father? Where did, he become, where did you become his son? How is he a father unto you? And already your mind's working on profitable, glorious things. And as you think about them, you know, your theology can also be prayed. Just I delight in you, God, that you have chosen to be my father. I'm unworthy. And you just start praying and just let it go. If you say something stupid, say, sorry about that. (laughs) That was a dumb thing to say. (laughs) But thank you nonetheless for who you are and what you've done. So you've you've got this opportunity baked in um, to biblical and uh, historic Christian and Lutheran piety when you're praying in the mornings and in the evenings. Like, no, there's, there's no New Testament Bible verse that tells you this is what you have to do per se, it's like all the wisdom, and indeed the template of the Old Testament is precisely this. And, why, and had, did the New Testament overturn that? I don't think so. Neither has the church for 2,000 years. So build this prayer life of morning and evening and at meals, and, and then you're constantly receiving, even just at that basic level, the wisdom from the Lord, sense from the Lord, perspective from the Lord. 
It's really perception, isn't it? It's really perceptual because even praying can instantly change your perception. Oh yeah, there's a God and there's a world bigger than my problems. Oh yeah, there's forgiveness of sins and grace and mercy. Oh yeah, I'm not stuck in this rat cage forever. Oh yeah, this too shall pass. Oh yeah, this that I'm experiencing is, is affliction and discipline from a father who loves me and who's strengthening me for tasks that he has in my future. It's just even praying utterly changes your heart. It changes your eyes, your spiritual eyes. It changes your perception of the world, your perception of the day. It, gra- it regrounds you. Um, and sometimes it's not so miraculous and wonderful, but it's necessary because the devil's got you down to a smoldering wick. And, you know, the world and the struggles have you down to a smoldering wick. And that prayer just brings it right back up to a candle that's, that's burning. Even if it's small, it's burning, and it's not in immediate danger of going out. I mean, that in and of itself is wonderful. It's a profound victory against darkness. Before Christ, the light came. It was nothing but darkness. So every little light shining, every little soul burning with a, a little bit of faith is an insult to the darkness and a victory and a miracle. So that's a different way of looking at the world, too. Look, looking at the world is like, hey, everything belongs to Satan and is already captured by him. So instead of looking at it like, oh, well, the devil's got more than 50%, he's winning. That's a, that's a demonic way of looking at it. That's a trap to d- make you despair. Instead, look at it like this, like the devil's got everything. But everywhere there is the light of Christ, he's already losing his grip. And everywhere there is the light of Christ, it's already a portent of that day of light when Christ returns and drives away all the darkness. He can't drive away this little flame. The devil wants you to say, oh, it's just a little flame. It's worthless. It's nothing. Be put out in no time. I win. That's, I mean, that's really the despair and the nihilism and the meaninglessness of our age that he tries to impregnate into our lives. So all you, just any amount of faith, any amount of hope, any amount of love is a complete rebellion against that and a stand that the darkness cannot overcome the light and will not overcome the light. And soon enough, Christ is going to come and remove all the darkness. So when we see it like that, it's like now all of a sudden a little thing is a big thing. A cup of cold water in the name of Christ to a little child isn't a little thing. It's a big thing. The widow giving her two mites isn't a little thing. It's a big thing. Will you also depart? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. It isn't a little thing on one given afternoon. It's a big thing. And that's the, that, that's the joy of life and the joy of living to bring light into the world that the devil does not want you to see. He wants you to be in despair and he wants you to be overcome by darkness. Instead, take stock and just create a little light wherever you can. It's a victory and it's a portent of that ultimate victory that Christ is bringing. Okay, please. Earlier today, before Bible study, I was thinking about High Noon, the Academy Award winning film. I don't watch enough movies. <laughs> I need well, to... it's an it's it's iconic film. Okay, okay. <laughs> it's about a sheriff. It always kind of bothered me that it was played by Gary Cooper, I think. I thought, oh, my goodness, he's such a mild-mannered man. (laughs) To this morning, I get it. But it's a story about a man fighting evil. And the theme song is, Do not forsake me, oh, my darling, on this our wedding 
day. And he is completely forsaken by all the authorities, all the people in the town, and even his bride, the wife. Mm, I see. Of course, it fits into the great story. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> right, of course. And it's, you know, the story writ small of Christ. Mm-hmm. And I think this humble man fighting evil. You watch the story. It's ah. great. Sounds like a great illustration of the, the things I've been uh, chatting about. So thank you for that. Have to look for it on Amazon Prime or whatever. <laughs> okay, anything else we want to reflect on here? Then let's seek to get a little further along. At nine, a false witness, I mean, this is virtually identical to five. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will perish. I see the only real difference here in the English, breathes out lies will not escape. So again, living our lives in the light of God's presence, speaking the truth and confessing where our lips give way to lies, returning right away to the truth by that confession. Um, This is the way we want to walk and live, so as to be warriors of truth rather than allies of lies. And then verse 10, it is not fitting for a fool to live in luxury, much less for a slave to rule over princes. Which I just, I mean, okay, doesn't that have its kind of earthly truth to it that obviously, like, I mean, I don't know, I I don't mean to be mean, but I hope that this is self-evident. It's, it's not fitting for a, a clown to be surrounded by things that you should otherwise have to work really hard for. Well, you see this. You see this with like sometimes celebrities or these other people online who, um, you know, you'll see them and you'll go, that guy's an absolute clown. How does he live in that mansion? Yeah. Uh, and then much less for a slave to rule over princes, obviously, because there's this like, you wouldn't have someone of low estate over those who are of high estate and high ability. All right, so hopefully on an earthly level, these things are self-evident. Now, on the spiritual level, I think there's, there's a profound reflection and indictment here of just how wrong and upside down the world is. Because we do live in a world where fools live in luxury and the wise live in poverty. And we live in a world where slaves rule over princes, um, slaves of Satan rule over princes of Christ, and that is the world in which we live. And it's backwards and it's upside down and it's infuriating. But God is just saying in effect, oh, I know. <laughs> it won't be this way forever. Put up with it. It's backwards. It's upside down. And I'm going to make it right in due course of time. So don't let it get you down. And I think there's beauty in that, that God sees and God knows, and he lets you know that he knows, and he lets you know that it's not right. So he's going to get this squared around, no doubt about it. And I think that that maybe is the best possible reflection on this proverb in light of the rest of the scriptures. Okay, we've got a little bit more of the slow down category here in 11. Good sense, this idea of of godly wisdom, understanding, perception. Good sense makes one slow to anger. We know that because God himself is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
Now, given the weirdness of our context and the feminism that just uh, pervades everything, it's good for me to reiterate, especially to the men, that slow to anger does not mean incapable of anger. Anger is not a sin. Anger is not wrong. Anger is the just and righteous response when injustice takes place. But we want to be slow to anger. We want to hear the whole matter out. We want to weigh sound and sober judgment. We don't want to be taken away by the passion of anger. But God is not subject to any of those things, and he's quite capable of being angry or filled with wrath. And if we're going to be conformed into his image, we must also be capable of being angry and brought to wrath. That's what it is to be a male. It's what it is to be protective, is to be, to be capable of that overwhelming wrath that actually affects the end of something, that affects the end of evil and brings about justice. If we're incapable of that, we're not Christians, we're eunuchs. So, be slow to anger. Seek to be angry the way God is angry. Like father, like son. That's the path through all the nonsense that's around in the Christian church in this day and age where it's like a sin to be angry or something. Uh, And the flip side, the corresponding error would be, hey, be angry all the time. Be wrathful all the time. Be judgmental all the time. No one's saying that either. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Likewise, us. Good sense, that is understanding God, understanding the way he thinks, as revealed in the scriptures, is going to give us good sense and make us slow to anger. Likewise, just as God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that's the kassad, that's the atoning love um, that manifests in Christ crucified, so also then the latter half of this proverb, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. So uh, to overlook an offense, again, I'm going to make a distinction just because of the weirdness of our times. We want to not see any offenses ever. We want to see everything as, oh, everything's fine. Everything's, no, identify the offense. (laughs) And then you can overlook it. You can overlook an offense. But the demonic perversion of this in our day is that there's no such thing as an offense. Any, anyone with, as long as it's consenting adults, anything can go. As long as you consent to it, you can do whatever you want. That's not freedom, that's slavery. It's not good, that's wicked. We should recognize times in which we should be angry. We should recognize offenses. But we should recognize that God has these categories within himself, and we want to be patterned after him. So good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense just as it is God's glory to overlook our offenses. Please. Um, One thing that was really helpful to me to understand anger is there's two kinds. One is your righteous anger, which Jesus so beautifully demonstrates to us over and over and over again, turning Mm -hmm. tables and all kinds of things. But then there's another one that gets misnomered as anger. And that's the one I think we need to be really slow about and really identify what emotion it actually really is. And that's actually fear. Because in our society in particular, sadly more so for men, 
it is more easy to show anger when they're afraid than anger or, or than fear mm. than than what's really driving that anger and the superficial anger the anger that i believe god's not interested in is that fearful anger mm. the one that's reactive impulsive quick to just quick to react mm. and i know that when i've slowed down and tried to think where my anger is coming from um Righteous, you're always right on. You see a baby being beaten or a dog being, you know, tied up forever. You know, I don't know. Whatever makes you angry, righteously, that's good and proper and the ones we should be speaking out about. But when it's truly fear, we need to find out, well, what are we so afraid of? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And speak more to that. And anger is often a secondary emotion that's covering fear. Mm, It's just super, super helpful to think about that way yeah yeah it's a good point and and anger uh, you you remind me so anger per se also doesn't have to be emotional wrath per se doesn't have to be an an emotional thing the anger or wrath of an executioner isn't he's all worked up about it that's just going to happen this is justice this is mathematical it's what it is no i don't want to hear anything else that's a kind of anger or wrath. So I think you bring up a great point that, biblically speaking, there are times where wrath should be immediate or anger should be immediate um, and times where it should be uh, slow, no doubt about it, as this proverb's kind of indicating. What determines what? And I would argue that there is the patterning off of God revealed in two different places, revealed in the natural law, that is, in our own hearts, and revealed in the scriptures. Those are the two things. You know, I don't need to wait and stop and find, as you said, like a child being abused or something. I don't need to stop and go find a proof text in the scriptures and, and pray about it before I intervene, right? Uh, so that's what I mean by there's a time in which anger and wrath should work quickly and a time in which it should work uh, slowly. And of course, um, this is drawing our attention to those times in which it should work slowly. Please, sir. Uh, I'm curious you partially answered it in in your explanation just now but if it's glorious to overlook an offense then what ought to be the catalyst to anger what you know how minor an offense should you become angry at like like, yeah yeah it's a it's a great question it's a great question and i'm not sure that there's an easy answer to it the easiest answer i can give is nebulous and that's patterned after christ and patterned after god so when you see, um, you know, there, there's degrees of sin that are inherently known in our hearts. It's different, it's different for someone to say something versus someone to do something. And there's degrees of sin that are um, roughly patterned. These categories can be roughly patterned off of the first, uh, or off of the commandments, I mean, from the first through the tenth. Those are, those are guideposts to keep in mind. Okay? Guideposts to keep in mind, like, why is this person saying this or doing this? Is, this? is compassion going to help them overlooking an offense? Is that going to further them on their way to God and to the kingdom of God? Or is rebuke? So those are some of the nebulous general thoughts that we should have in our hearts and minds. But I don't think there's any clear answer um, as to when and where that is. And I would even say that sometimes wisdom acts counterintuitively. In this country, 
what is the worst thing that you can possibly say? What is the, the worst vocable you can possibly say? Does that have anything to do with God? No. You can blaspheme the name of God. You can say whatever you want about God. And there is no social repercussion. There is no problem with it whatsoever. Any mockery that anyone wants to do of Christ is completely socially permitted and may well be published. Or may well become a skit on Saturday Night Live. Is that show still in existence? Pity. Uh, Then we've got a word or other words that you cannot say. Blasphemy that no tongue should speak. There's the real God. There's the real blasphemy laws. There's the real religion over and against. So, all that to illustrate that when someone says a cuss word, it is our enculturation, a cuss word against God, I mean, blasphemes God. It's our enculturation to just be like, maybe, maybe that's the opportunity we should say, what? I cannot believe you have said that. That is more offensive than anything else you could possibly say on the face of this planet. Because God, whose name you have just taken in vain, is the greatest name over all creation. And if you wouldn't blaspheme this people group or that people group or the other people group, how dare you blaspheme the one who made them in his image? So there may be a counterintuitive place for expressing Uh, a kind of measured wrath or anger in our culture that really subverts expectations and ultimately brings to light the false religion of our culture uh, in which we're all swimming and worshiping without realizing it. All right, that's it for today. The Lord be with you.